0: This is Deep Dish on global affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing the global U.S. military posture, particularly in uh, light of recent events in Syria, Afghanistan, and North Korea. Uh, we're interested in, in exploring where is the U.S. military engaged in the world, what are the main objectives of those engagements, and how this might be changing, and I'm joined for this conversation uh, by council president Ivo Dalder, who of course is a former US ambassador to NATO also served in the National Security Council and has been a frequent guest on Deep Dish. Welcome Ivo, it's good to have you back. Great to be here again. To start out, could you briefly summarize the recent actions taken by the US military in Syria, Afghanistan and North Korea? Uh,
1: yes, it's been it's been a busy few weeks. Uh, it all started with uh, uh, the reports of use of chemical weapons by uh, the Assad regime in Syria. Uh, and within a very short period of time, uh, uh, President Trump decided to respond to that use of chemical weapons, it turned out to be sarin gas, uh, a very deadly nerve agent, uh, by launching 59 cruise missiles against the air base uh, where the aircraft that had dropped uh, the uh, chemical bombs had flown from. Uh, you may recall in 2013, President Obama had drawn a red line saying that if the Syrian government were to use chemical weapons, then uh, he, his calculation on whether and how to use military force would change. Uh, uh, he uh, Chemical weapons were used in great quantity at the time. About a thousand people were killed. Uh, and he uh, decided in the end not to use military force. He, the red line was crossed and he didn't decide to do anything about it. Um, instead, uh, working diplomatically with, with Russia, we were able to uh, identify and then remove uh, most, if not all, of the chemical weapons. Turns out, not all. Uh, so they were used again. And in this case, in, in many ways to enforce that agreement, uh, President Trump decided to, uh, to punish uh, uh, Assad by, uh, by launching these strikes. A Couple of days later, uh, the uh, US uh, military dropped uh, one of the largest conventional uh, arsenal uh, bombs we have, and in fact the largest conventional bomb in our arsenal, uh, the MOAB, uh, sometimes referred to as the mother of all bombs, uh, in Afghanistan in order to destroy uh, underground tunnels that were uh, being used by, uh, by what we thought were uh, terrorists, uh, ISIS-related uh, terrorists who were uh, convening there. Uh, uh, we don't quite have the results of this campaign. When you drop a bomb like that on a tunnel complex with people, it may take some time to figure out what exactly was uh, destroyed inside uh, inside that area. But it was the first time we'd actually used this weapon uh, and the first time in, in Afghanistan. And then, of course, the uh, uh, escalation of tension uh, with regard to North Korea, there was the 105th anniversary of the founder of North Korea's uh, birthday, uh, was being celebrated with a huge military parade. There was the anticipation of a possibly sixth nuclear test uh, by the North Koreans, uh, the possibility of new tests of, of long-range missiles that led to uh, the announcement that the U.S. military was diverting uh, a major uh, a carrier battle group uh, from exercises that were supposed to take place in Australia and moving them up to, uh, to the Korean uh, uh, to North Korea uh, in order to emphasize the seriousness of America's military might so in all three cases we see um, uh, the use of military force all around the world from from the Middle East through uh, South Asia into Northeast Asia uh, we see the, the American military Uh, taking
0: on a prominent role in the execution of our national uh, security and foreign policy. One of the things that's striking about these three events is that they're happening over, as you point out, over a very large geography. And this really um, makes us think about what is the U.S. military capacity? What is our capabilities? How are we deployed around the world? Um, what, What does that footprint look like? Where can we operate? You know, one of the interesting things that we tend to
1: forget is that the United States is the only country in the entire world that has a global military footprint. We are militarily everywhere in a way that no other country ever has been uh, and is currently. Not China, not Russia, none of the European countries. No one has the kind of military footprint that we have. What is that footprint? It, 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 it is based on, on sort of three places uh, on the ground, uh, and then uh, a lot in, uh, uh, on the oceans and in the sea. We are in Europe where we have uh, two uh, battle groups, army battle groups, uh, and a reinforcement that comes in and out in, uh, for training purposes uh, on, on a permanent basis. Uh, so large numbers of army, uh, army capability. We have some air force, and we have some navy capability, and uh, stationed there as well in the Mediterranean. So we have a large military capacity in Europe. In fact, if you take the American military just in Europe, it's probably larger than any other military, certainly in its firepower, uh, than any European country is deploying. Second, we're in, uh, we're in the Middle East. Uh, mostly offshore we uh but in, in the gulf uh but we have some air particularly air and and uh and of course troop capabilities in Iraq uh a little bit in Syria we have a presence in Turkey in an air base we have air bases in in the gulf we have naval bases in which uh from which we uh, we steam uh a large part of uh, our navy so we're in the middle east um, and then we're in asia uh we have troops permanently stationed in Okinawa uh, Marines uh, in, in, in Japan, we have 28,000, some 50,000 troops there. We have 28,000 troops in, uh, in South Korea. Um, uh, we have uh, some troops now, even in Australia, a small uh, Marine uh, detachment uh, in Australia. And we have aircraft carriers and frigates and cruisers and uh, large numbers of extraordinarily capable uh, naval vessels. Uh, you know, a, a, an aircraft carrier is a little village. There are 5,000 people who live on that uh, on a ship like that. A battle group has with it uh, some submarines, which you don't see, but it also has uh, frigates and escorts and, 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 and minesweepers and a whole variety of things. It's a, it is, as President Trump said, an armada uh, when you start deploying this thing. And we have 11 of those. No other country in the world has more than one. And when the Russians... Went from the Baltic Sea in order to, to have their aircraft carrier uh, uh, deployed off the Syrian coast uh, in, the, in the Mediterranean. Uh, they barely could get there because they had to refuel so many times, and it was uh, it was a ship that in need of a lot of work. So. Just think about the extraordinary capability the United States have in terms of our air forces, uh, which by the way, also have global reach. We have long range bombers that can target any target or any place in the world coming from the United States. We have Naval vessels, we have Army and Navy, uh, Army and Marine uh, uh, troops on the ground, and they're deployed throughout the world able to provide protection
0: for the United States if and when it's needed. How does the fact that we have forces around the world lead to the protection of the United States? So that's, that's the key question, right?
1: And it, and, and it does it in, some, in, in, in many ways in, in, by sending two messages, two very big messages. One, it sends a message to our adversaries. Don't even think about messing with Uncle Sam. We are so strong we are so capable that if you try to infringe on our interests, whether it is attacking an ally or trying to stop uh, freedom of navigation on the, on the seas or let alone try to come anywhere close to our coasts, we're here able to stop you. So it is deterrence. It is trying to say, don't do it. It's not worth it. And if you try to do it, it's going to cost you. And it's cost you dearly. Much more for you than for us. The second way in which the U.S. presence around the world is really important is is for reassurance purposes. We are reassuring our allies that we have their back. And as a result, our allies are more secure, are more sense to be more secure, more willing to work with us. So they're working with us in places like Syria to deal with the threat from the Islamic State uh, and in other parts of the world. And importantly, because they know they can rely on the United States, They have decided that they don't need certain capabilities that, frankly, we don't want them to have. Most importantly, nuclear weapons. We are telling them, in fact, we have nuclear weapons, you, Germany, threatened by a Russian nuclear uh, weapon, you, Japan, threatened by a North Korean or or perhaps Chinese nuclear weapon, you don't have to get your own nuclear weapons. We will take care of that. We will provide that security guarantee to you. Uh, It's costly uh... to the united states we spent more on defense than most of our allies but think of the alternative think of the alternative of a world in which many countries all of a sudden decide that they all need to have the same kind of capabilities that that the united states has nuclear weapons uh, aircraft carriers uh... and some of those countries may not be friendly to us aren't we better off by having a large presence around the world to reassure our allies and friends and deter those who are most likely to, to do us harm at a cost of not war but peace and a little investment, my sense is that's what the fundamental reason is why we have that military capability and why it makes sense to continue
0: to have it. From that perspective, as you look at the, at the actions the Trump administration took that we started the show with, uh, do you see continuity or change in the evolving Trump use of U.S. military? I think in the broad spectrum over the last 70 years, there's a lot of
1: continuity. Um, why did we use cruise missile attacks against those that, that airfield? We were punishing as a means for deterrence. We were telling the Assad regime, you did something that we told you you shouldn't do, we hit you, you do it again, we're going to hit you better, bigger, stronger, and you better not do it. That's deterrence, classic case steaming the uh, Carl Vinson aircraft carrier from Singapore uh, up to, the nor- to uh, North Korea is both deterrence and reassurance. It's deterring to say to the North Koreans, you don't want to have a fight with us. This is not a good idea. We have military capabilities that you don't have. And if you, st- you start a fight with us, it's not gonna end well for you. But it's also telling the Japanese and it's telling uh, the, uh, the South Koreans we got your back we're here we're with you we will be here to protect you in case something happens with north korea and by being here uh and being with you uh we're hopeful that north korea won't do anything and you will be secure by the way we're also sending a message to china and so you don't like a lot large american military presence in your neighborhood well maybe you should put some more pressure on north korea so we don't have to deploy our large military presence in the neighborhood so it's sending that message too and by the way it's sending a message to russia we can do stuff you can't. We can be anywhere, anytime, place militarily, in a way that you can't. So don't push as much as you may have been pushing in the past. So I think this is part of a deterrence and reassurance strategy. If it's modulated, as it has been in the last few weeks, uh, and, and, it's, and it's folded into both this reassurance and deterrence message, I think we're seeing the continuity of American foreign policy and military policy uh, in this administration, uh, despite all the rhetoric and fears that somehow this wouldn't be happening.
0: And you have made a, a very compelling case for the role that the U.S. military can play in shaping U.S. foreign policy, and achieving foreign policy goals. One of the things that was notable about the Trump administration's recent proposed budget was a significant increase in military capabilities and in funding the military. And in order to pay for that, significant cuts, uh, uh, in many budget areas, one of the most significant within the State Department budget. How do you see that trade-off in the context of the use of the US military in order to achieve foreign policy goals?
1: So I don't think you necessarily need to trade guns and butter. And when it comes to foreign policy, to do either military or diplomacy. Uh, For 70 years we've been able to fund both. And there's no reason that today we can't do either. The time may have come for halting the reductions in defense spending and and starting to build up a little bit. And by the way, what President Trump is proposing is far below what somebody like John McCain thinks we need to be spending on on military force. It's not a radical departure uh, in any way, uh, in any uh, sense of the of the word. But diplomacy needs to be part of this, and having the capacity to use economic assistance, uh, military assistance, diplomatic engagement negotiations is necessary in order to exploit the benefit that you get from your military. So go back to what we talked about. You create this, shape this environment uh, in which you have deterred your enemies and you reassured your friends. Okay, so now war, the use of military power, is less likely. What are you going to do with that benefit unless you use it as a means to resolving disputes through negotiations, through diplomatic engagement, through economic and, uh, affairs? If, no, if North Korea decides we don't want to test, we're deterred. Well, why not have a negotiation then on figuring out how we can resolve that problem? Very difficult to have a negotiation if you don't have senior mili- uh, p- diplomatic personnel as currently is the case. Or you have no more carrots uh, because your foreign aid budget has been cut. Or you have no uh, uh, engagement on on a whole series of issues that need to be uh, dealt with from dealing with poverty, which can create conflicts that then, for example, uh, require you to deploy military forces. So the two go hand in hand. It's not one or the other. And it isn't the case that you can do more military and therefore you have to do less diplomacy. No, in fact, if you do more military, you actually have to do more diplomacy. Uh, And in fact, if you do less military, you have to do more diplomacy in order to counterbalance that. Uh, So uh, the wise thing, which is why I think Congress is unlikely to accept the kind of proposals that the president has put forward, is to, yes, let's figure out ways to spend on our military more wisely and perhaps more than we have in the past. But let's not do that at the expense of our diplomatic and economic uh, and foreign aid assistance, which is critical for our security in a different way.
0: And to close out this conversation, I want to ask, what do you see as one of the most important misconceptions of U.S. military power uh, today? And how would you encourage people to rethink how they conceive of power? So the most important misconception is the belief that if you use
1: military force, you've solved the problem. And let's look at the issue of Syria. Uh, The immediate aftermath of the 59 cruise missile strike was sort of this idea in the public commentariat that we had fundamentally changed the nature of our engagement in Syria. Actually, two weeks later, not a hell of a lot of difference. He didn't use chemical weapons again, which is good but in the fundamental nature of that conflict has been unaffected by the fact that we used 59 cruise missiles. And we need to understand that even when you use the most massive military force that you can, which is what we did in World War II, uh, and caused the, uh, the, 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 uh, the defeat of two major powers, the utter defeat of two major powers, it has taken not just weeks, not just months, not just years, it's taken decades to create the situation of peace through economic and political and diplomatic and yes military engagement with countries like Germany and Japan so the idea that force solves the problem is the misconception and we have this sense particularly in the united states that because you've used force and you've achieved an immediate tactical objective the destruction of something that you wanted to destroy you have solved the fundamental underlying problem and the answer is no and that's why When you have military forces, if you don't have a diplomatic strategy that is part of that, you're going to achieve only half
0: uh, of
1: of the goals that you have set and not in a lasting way.
0: Terrific. Well, thanks so much for being here, Ivo. It was a great conversation. My pleasure to be here as always. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Please note that the opinions you heard today are those of the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please take a moment and give us a review. Your review will help promote the broader understanding of global issues and also help others find the show. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and on the council's website at thechicagocouncil.org. I'm Brian Hanson, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.